Hi, I'm Randy Rissman, family doctor in Woodstock, New York. Started here in 1980, and I am delighted to be on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast today. My biggest pet peeve about the medical industry, this is a hard one because it's a toss-up between the drug companies and the insurance industry, because there are times they do not add value to the medical system. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome back, everybody. It's the spooky Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist, owner over the dominion of Woodstock Vitamins, with a face only a zombie would love to eat. If you couldn't tell, we got ourselves our first ever themed podcast. Halloween was yesterday, and I love any holiday focused on eating, especially chocolate. So today's podcast is in celebration of Halloween. It's medical horror stories. And joining me to share these stories is a rather famous guy. Maybe not to you, because you don't live in this crazy place we call Woodstock. But to us, Dr. Randy Rissman has been one of the longest-serving caregivers of our community. Dr. Rissman was the co-founder of Maverick Family Health, a family physicians group here in Woodstock. He served his community with love, hard work, and as we'll talk about on the episode, empathy, for almost 40 years. And he just retired a couple years back Though Dr. Rissman's a local hero, I believe that there are thousands of communities across this country of ours that have at least one, if not more, Dr. Rissman's practicing in it. So what we'll talk about, the stories we'll share, and the leadership he's shown are really unique to us and special to most of us that live here. But I know there's a component of this that's universal. And that's why I wanted to have him on, because most of this that we'll talk about could be said of so many excellent family practitioners, especially one in your hometowns. Dr. Rissman and I will share some personal medical horror stories of the patient, the practitioner, and the system itself. Enjoy. Let me talk a little bit about the health insurance industry. Sure. When Obamacare came in, patients would say, well, what do you think about government taking over health care? And I would say, do you know that Medicare is the government that <laughs> the private insurers are worried about next quarter's profits. They make billions. They make you think that they care about you. But every day in our office, we fight to get a patient an x-ray, an MRI, a hospital procedure, the right specialist. Their goal is to try to say no, to hassle the doctors, to hassle them into giving up when patients need appropriate care. Yeah. I mean, they only make money when they don't pay out benefits. That's how they make money is when they don't pay. Right. And the biggest horror in medicine has been the gradual creep of higher and higher deductibles and co-payments. Yeah. There are patients in a small town that if their refrigerator breaks, they can't buy another one. They don't have the cash in the bank. If they have insurance that's a $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, $5,000 deductible, it's as if they don't have health care insurance, and then they don't come to the doctor, and they don't get treated soon enough, right. and they end up with disasters. Right. It's, and there are, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and they're paying premiums to have those high deductibles. So yeah, I mean, I personally have, I think it's an $8,000 deductible, and I pay $1,400 a month, $1,300 a month, for that coverage and I'll get well visits covered. But if you think about it, I could probably pay for that out of pocket and still be well ahead of the curve. And the financial portion of our healthcare industry is what's ruining it. Exactly. And I've seen the, the personal tragedy of patients not getting the right care, not getting appropriate and timely care, being afraid of going to the doctor and the harm that can come to real people, it needs to stop. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know how to make that stop. And I don't know how they thought it was ethical to keep jacking up the prices for 
deductibles and co-payments, I think they, it was just creep. They started yeah, yeah. small, they moved up. Oh, I got away with it. I could raise this more. That's really what it more. is. It has nothing to do with ethics. It has to do with what can we get away with. And, you know, right now we're in this horrible situation where we're all paying through the teeth, not getting very good care or service. And we're still paying for it because we kind of have to. So they're like, well, what else, you know, what other proof do we need to know that this is going to be something we can keep porking for a while? And like you, having run a small town business, yeah. Maverick Family Health, I founded in 1982, mm -hmm. I had to provide and wanted to provide good insurance to my staff yeah. and found it became increasingly difficult to keep the co-payments down, to keep the deductibles down and yeah. still provide those services to people who were so essential to my work. Yeah, I mean, right now it's it's something like six to eight hundred bucks for an individual to have a high deductible plan if I paid for it, or they can go to the exchange for like four hundred bucks and not have a deductible. So we don't even bother anymore. We can't provide that service, so we have to kind of adjust our salaries to make up for it. But when we started too, so I'm only uh, in it thirteen years, right? And when we started, we had. Um, we would pay the premium for our employees and all of their costs. So I think it was something like four to $5,000 a year in other costs, like co-pays anything. So it was like a flex spendable account sort of, you know, or a healthcare savings account. And we were able to do that. And then as soon as the change came, and again, the Obamacare laws were good to protect us, but it was just that the insurance company still existed. So they're going to get their pound of flesh. So that's when everything changed, where the, the numbers went through the roof because then they needed to make their profit, which is part of the the horror of this whole thing. So let's get into some horror stories here about medicine. That's why I wanted you on. We're going to do our first themed discussion. So um, let's talk about without piling on patients <laughs> and like, you know, uh, making fun of people. Let's talk about um, patient errors or decisions that were bad that started from the patient's perspective that ended up being a medical horror story. This takes me back to my residency training in Flemington, New Jersey, across from the Flemington Speedway. Mm -hmm. And I would have a shift in the emergency room as the young doctor. And a patient would come in, ma'am, uh, didn't you see that tire coming at you flying <laughs> off the car that hit you in the head? You know? Wow, really? Or, or you know, the, the driver of the car who had a crash was would say, please don't cut off my expensive asbestos suit. I said, that's exactly what I have to do right now to save your <laughs> life. Right. <laughs> right. So I have, I have one that is actually like a real horror story around patients. Um, so, you know, supplements can work if they're done correctly. We try to help people do it correctly. One of the most used supplement ingredients is salt palmetto. We're actually writing a blog on it this week too, so I got all the inside scoop. But anyway, salt palmetto can help out with BPH or like enlarged prostate. And it's good for the early stages when you're first getting the symptoms and you know you have a good conversation with your doctor about what's going on. The part that was missing in this horror story is the the patient didn't have that communication with their doctor. They decided that they wanted to just take it. They felt like they had those symptoms. They just took it and they kept taking it and taking it and taking it. And then all of a sudden it kept getting worse and worse. And they go to the doctor and he had been masking prostate cancer. So because it was so effective at eliminating the symptoms, the prostate cancer was able to grow and, uh, and it ended up being very serious. So that is my patient horror story around uh, a patient error. Prostate health is more important to me now that I'm an older guy. <laughs> yep. The early story I had about uh, prostate was about a patient who came in Actually, there were several patients, and I won't mention names, and I don't want anybody to believe that any of the stories I would tell, it's their stories. Yeah. These are masked. But there were several patients that came in with prostate problems, and part of the treatment of prostatitis was to be sexually active, that mm -hmm. it was good to ejaculate. At least that's what we were taught at the time. Yeah. It made me a popular doctor. But, sure. but, mm -hmm. but I remember when... What if I don't know anybody, sir? Just just do it. Just make sure it gets done. I would have I would have people say, they went to Dini's, which is now Kuchita. Mm -hmm. They went to Dini's and they said, the doctor says I have to uh, have more sex. Anybody interested? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a pickup line. But that doesn't sound like a horse. That sounds like no, a great... No, no but uh, the, and then 
And then there was a patient that I thought had prostatitis who, mm-hmm. what I didn't know was that his relationship with his wife wasn't that great. Oh. They had sex and he had a child. And But years later, and it turned out he had, he had cancer, mm-hmm. he came back later and said, thank you so much because my daughter's wonderful and this wouldn't have happened had, had I not literally en- encouraged followed that. I mean, yeah. encouraged that. But, but in a sense, people treat themselves. They don't want to believe they have something bad. We're all part of that. Even as a doctor, he who treats himself as a fool for a doctor, as they say. And, right. and even as a doctor, you tend to treat yourself. You probably do this too. And, a little bit. And, and it's human nature not to believe that you could have something bad. But, but the biggest horror stories are people who come in so late in the course of a disease a woman with a breast lump that's the size of a, of an orange they just didn't yeah. come in mm-hmm. and, and people with obvious problems uh, that don't come into the doctor. The other problem is how patients communicate to the office staff to even get an appointment. They finally are going to make an appointment and they might say to a receptionist or a call center, gee, I'm having heartburn. They're diagnosing themselves. They're right. having chest pain. Right. Yeah. They're saying, mm-hmm. oh, I think it's just heartburn. Yeah. And I mean, well, they're like we'll downplaying give, it, yeah, right? Yeah. So, well, we'll give you an appointment in two weeks. So it'll, it'll take some Prilosec. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they're having chest pain. Yeah. But people go down the wrong path by the terms you use when you describe that to the office. Yeah. And by trying to diagnose themselves rather than describe symptoms. Mm-hmm. The, the whole staff and the whole office goes down the wrong path. Absolutely. That's a really good tidbit of advice is making sure that you you talk about like the actual symptoms and, and what you're feeling versus like your thoughts on what it could be because that changes the uh, triaging at the, the counter side. So you... When did you retire officially? I retired over three years ago, Okay, which, so you, which was a shock to the community. Yeah, It took another doctor, somebody you know, mm-hmm. but I won't mention the name, but another doctor looked me in the eye and said, Randy, you've been doing this for 36 years in Woodstock. You, mm-hmm. You've been the hamster on the wheel mm-hmm. and been available to everybody for all that time. You're turning 65. It's okay. Yeah. But... I was worried that I was going to end up in a box if I kept doing this, but I miss the relationships. I miss the people. I miss being a smart guy and trying to figure out yeah. what a disease state is and working with people, seeing who they are, working with them. I miss all that. I do not miss the business of medicine, the, no. the insurance industry, the computer. Did you click this? Did you click that? It, yeah. It's a nightmare. Yeah. And so we're going to get to that as yes, one of the, the sure more hot, uh, modern horror stories. But the the thing I have to say is the person that you're referring to is the rock doc, who was our first interview here, Neil Ratner, a local Woodstocker and physician, uh, had to give you permission. And this is something that people have to understand is I believe that we were talking about the the problems with the healthcare system. And there's a lot of people like you and I, you know, that we're independent practitioners. We want to do the best for the community. We really, really give a lot to this thing so much so that we fear often, are we going to drop dead because of the amount of like energy and effort that we're doing here, you know, with the added stresses of this thing. And that is going away in communities all across the country because of the financialization of this, like the, the weaponization of the, the money side of, of medicine. So much of medicine is about relationships. It's about how do you see that patient in front of you how do you view them? Do you understand their context? When you don't understand human behavior, mm-hmm. it's probably because you don't know enough about the situation, about the context of that behavior. Right. And not to excuse bad behavior, but when you see the big picture of somebody's life, it makes more sense. Yeah. Why is somebody anxious? Why is somebody hostile? Why are they so scared? It makes sense once you see the whole picture and i'm sure you've know this oh definitely yeah i mean well for us it's great because we can show people on a daily basis the value of interacting with an independent pharmacist um and then we also have that added advantage of the holistic expert the supplement care so it's really good we're we're very accessible being pharmacists and then because we're in the community and we're community-minded and i know everybody that that helps build all of the the strength of the advice 
You know, um, when somebody comes in and they, they're getting prescribed something from their community doctor, I know all their stuff. I know everything that's going on outside of their medical diagnoses. So then I can help kind of steer the conversation a little bit better. Or, you know, we had somebody on talking about the opioid epidemic, right? So I know I see the person, right? I see the person picking up their prescriptions. I know how they're acting, how they're behaving, and I can kind of help guide the conversation to better strategies to help manage that. So I, I think that is the key point that's been taken away that's been stripped away is that it's less about relationships and more about just moving you through um but let's keep on this subject i you know something came to me when we were talking about this what is the quintessential example of a medical horror story that is patient uh, i guess started or like you know uh, from a patient's uh perspective steve jobs yes you know Perfect yes. example. Do you know much about? Yes, that he had pancreatic cancer and didn't want to follow medical, traditional medical advice. And, and we know that cancer, even when I went to medical school, it seems like it was 1873, but yeah. it was 42. I graduated, I graduated medical school 42 years ago. But even at that time, we knew that cancer was environmentally induced most of the time. Yeah, We still haven't come to grips with that. We fight off cancer cells all the time. Our mm -hmm. body's immune system knows how to deal with this, but we are attacked by air, water, food, things that affect us that we don't even know. But most cancer treatment is about new and improved chemotherapies and not prevention, not understanding what's really causing this. Right. And so, and so to see in our day and age that, clean air and clean water and clean food standards are going down and nutritional standards are going down and processed yeah. food is going up is so disturbing. It's so. very disturbing. And I can understand what, you know, Mr. Jobs perspective was he's, you know, he thought that they were equivalent. And, and the thing is, is that all the nutritional and the holistic manners of treating is addressing these environmental risk factors. But once you get to the point where the disease is manifested, you need treatment now, you know, and sometimes treatment can include herbal remedies if it's done correctly, you know, in the very loose sense. But when we're talking about something serious like that. It, it's time to get the best care that you can. I always look at people who are facing serious conditions and, and I feel very positive when they're looking for what can I do nutritionally with supplements to add to what I'm doing, right. not to say, I'm not doing this. And I certainly have had patients who just absolutely wouldn't accept medical treatment, even if your leg needed to be amputated and they wouldn't do it. And even to the point where it was infected and even had maggots in it, you know, yeah. and smelled and they still wouldn't do this. And you face these horrors of people just in denial about what they need. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, speaking of toes and horror stories, I've picked somebody's uh, pinky toe out of their sock uh, when I worked for oh. the VA because they you know, had diabetic neuropathies and such. So, yeah, uh, it can get pretty, pretty wonky out here. Right. Um, it's, it's true. It's um, true. So let's now move from the the patient to the practitioner. So practitioner errors or mistakes that you've experienced or you've done yourself and how those can turn into medical horror stories. Yes. Well, of course, like most human beings, I could be great 99% of the time, but when something goes wrong, that's mm -hmm. what you think about. That's what you obsess about. That's Absolutely. Because you can't know everything and, and we don't, there's a mythology out there that doctors in the medical profession can figure everything out and understand everything because they're so smart, but it's not true and it is complicated. And we live in a rural area where we don't have the Mayo Clinic here mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of time to refer to this doctor who then refers to that doctor, to another doctor, we'll see you in six weeks, we'll see you in a month. Well, there's no real time discussion, which gets to the, the real problem is that doctors don't talk to each other in real time yeah. and discuss cases. Almost everything that goes wrong in medicine is because somebody didn't listen, somebody didn't talk to somebody else, somebody didn't have the full records. They just didn't understand what was really going on. And you also see this, I'll tell a story from a long time ago when we did our own hospital work for over 30 years and, yeah. and 
That was very rewarding. It may not have been cost-effective, but we knew the patients. We knew their strengths. We, we could draw on their families. Being a family doctor, you know who's who and what's going on. Right. And that's essential than showing up at the hospital and they don't know who you are and they don't have your records and they don't know anything about you. It was harder to give, give up the hospital than anything I've ever done. Because really? That made you feel like a complete doctor, right. but it didn't make sense as a financial as medicine, model. Right. As mm-hmm. a financial model. And then they were hospitalists and intensive care specialists. But one night early in my career in the intensive care unit, a woman came in with a bleed into her brain and she was quite elderly and there was no chance of survival, of meaningful survival given where this was. And they, of course, in the emergency room automatically put her on a ventilator. She's in the ICU and I'm talking to the family and saying, your loved one, I can't speak for you. I know what I would do if this were my family. You just learn how to talk to people about giving bad news, which yeah. is which is hard. Yeah. There's lots of tragedies. But are we keeping her alive for you or for her? What's Where is this going? This doesn't really make sense. And if it were my family, but you're going to have to sit down and talk about this and what would she have wanted if she could have seen herself in this situation? And I'm explaining all this, doing a beautiful job. And the the pulmonary specialist who was in charge of the ICU that night comes in and says to the family, just walks in and says, if you don't keep her on a ventilator, it's going to be your fault she died. Oh, that's and pretty that's professional. And that's, yeah. that's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. How could, you, how could you say that to a family? How could you be so cold? Yeah. How could you be so cold and blame the family for something that... Well, that's a thing with docs, right? They become like almost... They try to become robots to de- detach the emotional side. So talk to that for me, will you? Oh, that that's a very interesting subject because doctors don't talk to other doctors about what they go through. Mm-hmm. I always... My joke as I was retiring the last six months, I would say to my regular patients... Uh, listen, I'm going to let you in on the secret. I'm not really a doctor. I just watched a lot of MASH growing up. <laughs> and I slept at Holiday Inn Express. Yes. The, uh, but I would joke about this. The doctors don't talk to other doctors about the stress they go through, what it is. And mm-hmm. like MASH, every day is incoming wounded. Right. You know, you're on to the next thing and the next thing, and you don't have time to process what you've just dealt with because there's so many new things that are happening every day. So this was hit home to me when they built the new rescue squad building years ago. I came in to give a talk to hospice volunteers. uh, And I'm thinking, what am I going to talk about? Well, I'll talk about how the cancer doctors, the oncologists, don't really often talk to patients straight and how do you communicate with them and get them to tell the truth to the patients and what they have to offer and what, what is just buying time and might be making you sicker. And I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. And I walk into the rescue squad building and here on the wall, I was totally unprepared for this are plaques that people in this community have donated to the rescue squad. And here's the name, and here's my first AIDS patient, and here's this family, and here's that family, and here's this person I took care of. It was like looking at your scorecard. We don't keep scorecards. Right. I was in tears. I was reclaimed before I even walked into this (laughs) lecture. Mm -hmm. I had a few minutes to look at this, and, and it was just profoundly emotional to actually see it there. Right. See, I've touched all these lives. These pe- and more importantly, these people have touched my lives. Right. You know, in in a sense, it's been such a luxury to be a primary care doctor at a small town, and particularly this small town. Yeah, and this I know you understand that facility. as yeah. wacky as it is, and mm-hmm. it's not like anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You give back from this. Not only do you give, we started out talking about giving and, and the compassion fatigue and yeah. <laughs> what it is to give. But you know what? You get back from this. And and particularly end-of-life issues and difficult issues, you really come very close to families in real life. Yeah, that's where you shine is when in those crisis moments. We we try to commoditize medicine quite a bit because most of us are just dealing with the the day-to-day monotony <laughs> of it all, you know, oh, I've got high blood pressure, I've, you know, but like, you know, strokes and heart you attacks. You can get lulled to sleep as a primary care doctor. I think that's a danger is that 
Oh, another sore throat, another sprained ankle, another, <laughs> another, another mm-hmm. case, another person with heartburn, and mm-hmm. another person that's another. whatever it is. But you always have to pay attention to when is it out of the ordinary. There's a saying in medicine: when you hear hoofbeats, you think of horses and not zebras. But every once right. in a while, there's a zebra, mm-hmm. and you have to be aware of that and you pay attention to that. And that's one of the things as a family doctor and i'm sure you see it here which one of these people that walks into the pharmacy looking for something over the counter to take for their symptoms that's something serious very serious yeah and it's something that people have to pay attention to part of the reason why i tell uh, a lot of people in my writing that you should not be getting advice about medical care from people that aren't registered licensed professionals because in my space the supplement industry you can walk into any quote unquote health food store that sells just fancy processed foods, you Mm -hmm. know, and a couple of organic vegetables, but they're selling supplements and medicines. These are medicines, whether they're good or bad, they're medicines. They all have a pharmacological effect in the body. And how can you trust the teenager that that's there, that this is good for you? Like uh, without knowing anything about you, without having that relationship or that clinical expertise. So, you know, I have lots of uh, practitioner related horror stories around, People just giving really bad advice. Uh, You know, uh, one of the biggest things that I've seen is in the supplement industry is that uh, a practitioner will tell somebody to take 20 supplements at once, you know, uh, because that's how they make money is by selling lots of supplements. And the additive effects of the B vitamin in the one thing and in the other and the other, and that these people end up having worse symptoms because of that, um, you know, potential overdose from isolated synthetic chemicals. All of this stuff can happen because of the uh, lack of respect that's paid towards the whole system. And one of those things is like you're talking about, you get lulled to sleep. Like this seems boring to most of us. This isn't an eventful kind of thing, but we don't realize the weight of these decisions uh, early on in in the process. Um, I have have a personal uh, medical horror story. My one major uh, medical error happened pretty recently, maybe three years ago now. Um, We were still compounding. Um, We were compounding here. And if there's... uh, you know, compounding pharmacists that are listening to this, um, or somebody that's been a practitioner in Woodstock, uh, the patients tend to have unrealistic expectations about the amount of work that's needed and about the amount of time that's needed. In Woodstock in particular, people are very pushy uh, because they want stuff right away. You know, lack of planning in your port doesn't make an uh, emergency on my part. I didn't really live that uh, credence. I would try to rise to the occasion as a independent practitioner and say, I can get this done for you to solve your problem. And as a result, I made a medical error while compounding something for a baby. And it, uh, if the parents weren't savvy and weren't watching the symptoms, that baby could have died. So I had accidentally overdosed somebody when I made a compound and the, you know, with any medical error, any, any problem, any horror story that comes uh, from a practitioner or from a system, you'll know that it is a system. It's a failure of multiple systems that normally results in something serious. It's not one decision. It's, it's one decision uh, with three other decisions and then a few other factors on top of it that have caused multiple checks and balances to break. And in our situation, it was, I was being rushed, like the family had called multiple times. The The physician's office had called a couple times. We need this. We need this. We need this. And, um, and the, I was trying to leave. So I had this pressure that I, I was on my way out the door for vacation, but this had to get done before I left, you know, and then I have other things, you know, drawing my attention. And literally I could probably do the math right now in my head and, and still know that the math wasn't 100% correct, but I grabbed the wrong product off the shelf and used that. And overrode my uh, normal checks and balances to make sure that I had the right product. So um, it was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But just like you said, if we're right 99% of the time, that's still a crazy thing. But you thing. think about the thing that went wrong that you that's what you think about because that's mm-hmm. human nature. If it, you're if you're yeah. compassionate caring and and the expectation of patients is that you're going to get everything right and know everything and yeah. you, and you can't. You yeah. Can't I mean, I, I looked that. out for how, like, so immediately Institute of safe medicine practices, I reached out to them uh, because they're one of the groups that we subscribe to. They were very uh, compassionate with the whole thing. And that's what they kept reminding me. And even my physician friends, I you know called my best friend from high school and I'm like, dude, 
guess what I just did? And he's like, you fill, how many prescriptions do you fill? And it's true, we've like 50,000 a year that my hands touch, you know? So it's like in all of those events, there was no issue. In fact, you probably saved a lot of people in those period by using your clinical judgment in this one out of 50,000 times the 10, 15 years that you've been practicing. Um, so, but still in that one moment, you, you hope to, that you're, you know, you're going to make those right decisions. Right. It it plays over and over and, and, but it's a sign of being a good person and a caring person that you even recognize that the communication in healthcare also is compounded by problems with medical records and medical information Mm -hmm. and the computer, which does keep a better record of prescriptions things can only be prescribed now by computer in this state Mm -hmm. the narcotics are controlled in in a stricter way the ability for us to see that patients had been getting narcotics from other doctors and we could we could wake up to that sometimes people that i never imagined would have been doing this and yeah. They, they seem, you know, the school marm type of person. Right, who, and they're rocking hard. Out they're, they're manipulating multiple doctors. And, right. and you can get fooled, and it and it feels bad to, to, to be taken advantage of mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. But the medical records, the fact that years ago they didn't mandate that every computerized medical system has to talk to every other one, that you can share data and share lab tests and share hospital information and communicate in real time on a computer the companies that made the medical record systems didn't want that they yeah they intentionally and they firewalled lobbied it. Mm-hmm. lobbied against it mm-hmm. and and if if i if i were the president of the united states i would sign one thing for medicare i'd say when a patient hits the emergency room, it is mandatory to show good a good faith effort to call the primary doctor to call the other doctors and to get those records yeah. and make sure whoever's treating that patient within 24 hours has those records. Yeah. And they could, with just the flick of a pen, mm-hmm. make that happen. Right. And lots of things that go wrong wouldn't go wouldn't wrong. Wouldn't go wrong, right. So let's move into the horror stories around the system. Uh-huh. So then this is the big one. I mean, the idea, so I worked for the VA as a clinical pharmacist for a few years. We had that. Like uh, Hurricane Katrina happened, right? And they were able to just shift people up and they had the complete records of them. And that's the way that it kind of should be, right? We should have one chart, one example of us that practitioners that we give uh, rights to uh, can access all of that data to get a clear picture of what's going on with us. That's correct. And the VA actually had a very good system for that compared to out in the public sphere. Despite all of us know horror stories in the VA, the computer system and the ability to share information was quite good. Yeah, that that was my favorite part of it. It's just the ability to see everything that I needed to see at any time, every lab test. And, you know, the way that it's presented to, you can see real good trends over time and such. So, you know, the... The medical situation with finance is a major, major problem um, and the profit uh, centers that are in this. And um, so that in and of itself, it's a horror story. But uh, one of the things that you touched on um, is the idea that your relationship with the doctor has to evolve to this broken system in order to navigate it correctly. And this is what I talk about a lot when we talk about a holistic care plan. It's the those lifestyle environmental decisions we make anything you can buy over the counter supplements or otherwise and then the top of this what we call the wellness pyramid is a relationship with a real medical professional because you can't have a real holistic care plan without all three of those elements without a real doctor involved in diagnosing this stuff and that's a hard thing for people to sell people feel like they should just stop at the supplements and that's it i've got a naturopath and i've got supplements and that's all i need but we need the traditional system but now how do we teach people how to interact with that broken system? Right. I certainly see family doctors inherently when family medicine started as a specialty. It used to be you just had your GP, your general practitioner, who didn't have extra training. But but in my training in family medicine now, and I was one of the first full-time faculties of what now is the Kingston Family Practice Institute. Mm-hmm. It started on Rooks Road in Woodstock, and, and I was the director of satellite services in 1980, 
up until 1983 when I opened my practice. I was three years old, just so yeah, you know. Really, just you know. No, no, oh, boy. Oh, no. <laughs> really. Uh, some of the older patients uh, knew old Dr. Berg, who they saw as sort of the country doctor, Marcus Welby. And, but he only practiced 17 years here. I put in 36 years. Right. So more you than got, twice yeah, now. But, but I see myself as young. That's why I live in Woodstock. Isn't that why, isn't that why we live here? It right. It keeps us young. It keeps us young. But, or at least happy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, medical etiquette and, and just good behavior and professionalism. Think of, a, think of a specialist making rounds in the hospital and they come in and they're standing up with your chart or a computer and there maybe there's a team of other doctors or nurses and they stand over the patient bed and they talk to each other and they don't talk to the patient or listen to the patient or touch the patient. Yeah. How hard is it? Imagine the orthopedist, the, the surgeon sitting down at the bedside saying, Mrs. So-and-so, I know this is scary. This is, you're not having a good time here, but we've put a team together here. We've, we have a plan to, to understand what's going on and get you better. If, do you have any questions for me? Oh, you know, if you can't think of any questions, write them down for tomorrow. Is there somebody in the family I should talk to? Yeah. You know, and then touch the patient and, and then just be quiet for a minute. Yeah. Let them talk to you for just a few minutes. The average doctor interrupts the patient in about 18 seconds in any medical interaction. Wow. Part of it's a game. It's like doing a crossword puzzle. A patient comes in and they start to say, Doc, my knee hurts. And, and all, all of a sudden you're saying, does it hurt over here? Does it hurt over there? And you've interrupted them instead mm -hmm. of saying what happened to them and what was the mechanism yeah. of the injury and what, and most importantly in orthopedics, what's the meaning of that pain to your everyday life? Right. Because for some people, if your knee hurts, it's not a big deal. You're not hiking, mm -hmm. you know, but for somebody who loves sports or it has different meaning. If does your hand hurt? Well, if you're a piano player, it's a, That's different a major story. thing, but you have to know who the patient is and what, what this means in their life. What, what is the nature of this? And, doctors routinely and I, I i catch myself when i'm stressed and have always caught myself interrupting patients because you you're always behind and, and you're trying to cut corners and you realize it's much more cost effective to just listen for a minute and also empathy how do you yeah. teach empathy to doctors that don't have it the, some people just have this mm -hmm. but to say you know, this must be really hard for you. This is really, you know, I know the strengths you, I've seen you through X, Y, and Z in the last 20 years, Mrs. So-and-so, I know you can get through this challenge and we're going to, I'm going to be here for you and we're going to coordinate this. That's better than any pill or supplement you can give a patient. Without a doubt. Belief, people mm -hmm. have to believe that the doctors at the medical system cares about them, that they see who they are, that they understand what this means, that they understand their anxieties and fears and how this is affecting greater systems than themselves. And I think that's the biggest horror story from my perspective is the idea that medicine has changed so much uh, from a financial model, which has changed the care model. Right. So now physicians and traditional practitioners have basically relegated empathy and care to whoever is out there that'll listen. And that's a problem for me because uh, I believe if a patient was willing to pay you a couple hundred dollars for a consult, you would take it and you would sleep over their house, I think, practically, right? So because the amount of uh, the financial uh, workings, right? So so we now are not leading um, holistic care, medical care, preventative medicine. We've now earned a reputation to be part of this system. So one of the first questions that I'll, I'll ask you in this little segment is, uh, how much money did you receive from Big Pharma in direct checks for, uh, for prescribing pills? Because that's the big thing that a lot of people think. If you talk about doctors in a general sense, they'll say doctors are bought off by big pharma. Yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> it is true. The drug companies, I remember the very first, when I was early in practice, this is mid-80s of Maverick Road, where I got the Maverick Family Health name, and my staff knocked on the door, interrupted me with a patient. There's an express mail package for you. Mm -hmm. They thought this was a big deal. This is before fax machines. <laughs> right. And, can't believe we, we lived back in those days. But right. but here's an I open it up and it's from a drug company. It was 
It was from the company that made Tagamet, Simetadine, at the time. And they were doing a big conference in New York City, and they were inviting me down with my wife at the Waldorf Astoria for two nights and dancing and theater tickets. And I remember calling my wife and saying, can you believe this drug company is doing this? And, And she says... What are you nuts? If we don't yeah. go, somebody else is going to go. That's right. Take advantage. <laughs> so, so you would. They were the only people that were nice to us. They'd bring you lunch. They'd talk to you. You did learn from about new drugs, but this does influence you. They set up dinners that are informative with people you respect, doctors you respect. I've given lectures in the past about antidepressants, bipolar disease, you know, and they would let me talk about why you should work with mental health providers and why you should look at this holistically. Mm-hmm. But as I look back at this, I would never do that again. You know, I, yeah. I realized I was, I was just a target of theirs to, to yeah, of the system to, of the system. And it is something I'm remorseful about. Mm-hmm. And we certainly saw this with what became the opioid epidemic. We know that over the counter, ibuprofen and uh, naproxen, you know, Advil, Motrin, uh, Aleve. These drugs cause bleeding ulcers. They kill people's kidneys. They're extremely dangerous drugs. The fact that they're even over the counter is, is questionable at times. Is yeah. really mm-hmm. questionable. It's great for a couple of weeks. People, but, mm-hmm. the elderly taking this and knocking out their kidneys, and it, it's a big cause of the need for dialysis or mm-hmm. GI bleeds, and it keeps the GI doctors in business. And and I've certainly seen all those disasters. And and pain management specialist would come around and say, well, if you put somebody on a long-acting opioid, like duragesic patch, fentanyl now is the, is, mm-hmm. the, is the worst drug, but this can't be abused and they, this will give a steady state. So many patients have chronic pain and who are we to walk in their shoes or to know what it's like to live with that problem? They can handle this at a, at a steady state with long-acting, less abusable drugs than short-acting drugs. Mm-hmm. Because as we know, a Percocet doesn't last four hours. It's two and a half, three hours. And right. people would then hurt too much and wait too long and then wait for the next pill. And so, gee, we had long-acting oxycodone now. But there was no end game right. for this. And it was wonderful for people with cancer, for people with just horrible diseases. There are people who hurt and we have unimaginable problems, but the ability to abuse these drugs and distribute them and, and the fact that the drug companies were not honest with us about the risks or the addictive potential or the difficulty getting off of these drugs mm-hmm. is, is quite astonishing. And, right. and again, something that we've all woken up to, hopefully. Yeah, I, I would hope that this is a, a mark to change for everybody. And we should also note that like once those laws changed about what gifts a drug company can do that pretty much stopped overnight. Like uh, there are still ways, of course, for doctors mm-hmm. to get kind of greasy palms with uh yeah we didn't get real gifts i don't want to give the you know yeah. we would get pens and notepads but yeah <laughs> it wasn't it you wasn't weren't getting anything. straight up checks you were getting checks if you were doing speaking engagements which is common right. i mean like jesus deepak Chopra gets like 40 grand to talk right. you know and and so like for a practitioner to get a grand or 1500 bucks yeah. to speak that's normal that's a normal rate um and you did have to put a ton of effort in it because you're giving it uh, to your peers and it has to be certified and accredited the information that you're saying so there is um some legitimacy to the system but we know that it was dressed up and one of the things i like to say you know so it's one thing to be critical of that experience but it's another one to say i don't trust that entire industry because of the the greed that's been shown in the corruption but i'll trust this other industry, the natural products industry, because they don't have that. Right. Um, and that's the funny part. Like, uh, there are supplement companies I've ranted about it on the podcast and in my blogs, there are supplement companies that will take me out to dinner that will pay me to speak for them. And it is more quote unquote than it is anything else. Because if you look at the content that most of these supplement company doctors are, are sharing, it's not medical, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like anti-medical and gifts and free product and all of the, you know, incentives, financial incentives are larger, I would say in the natural product industry. Uh, because it's unwatched and it's kind of unregulated, and uh, and it, it does, certainly doesn't have the, the the laws that we have now with the the medical industry. So, how many it, of these products have you seen pulled off the market? The supplements? Yeah. Oh yeah. The, there's a it's innumerable. And in fact, my newest pressure uh, is to 
teach people you should say death to trendy supplements. Uh, you should say that trendy supplements because you know, it's funny because like one of the biggest mechanisms now is the pyramid scheme, the MLM multi-level marketing to sell supplements. And I, I heard this great quote. It's, do you, you know, 10 years ago, people were talking about Amway and their pyramid schemes. Do you know literally anyone that's rich now, 10 years later with that? You literally know no one. So why, if those didn't work, if those systems didn't work, how can we expect any of these modern MLMs to actually pr produce any, any benefits? And in fact, we know that it's just a sales tactic for the company to get rich. So, um, so, you know, these trendy supplements that are coming from like these alternative sales methods, they're dangerous. And, you know, one of the things you were just talking about, you're talking about bleeding ulcers and the risk of NSAIDs. Well, everybody and their mother's on turmeric right now. You know, and turmeric works on those same pathways. I, I believe it's going to be our next oopsie moment. We're going to have a lot of people that are going to have lots of problems with that. And, and you know, the big thing with botanicals and any supplements in general, you're not getting what you think you're getting. You know, you might be buying a bottle that says turmeric, but it might be synthetic curcumin. And, and just I'm doing, uh, again, Saul Palmetto is coming up. Uh, so they're actually it's a plant and it's a fatty acid profile, essentially, like trying to make it not as nerdy as it is that causes the five alpha reductase effects in the body. Right. Mm -hmm. So they found that certain animal fat has that same kind of profile. So it can get by any of their quality checks that you do on a product as you're receiving it in to make your salt palmetto product. Right. So they're taking chicken and lamb and, you know, dog fat basically, and they're turning it into their salt palmetto products and companies are letting this go through and it's hitting the market. So if patients could see who are looking for natural products, if they could see where this comes from right. in a, in a and, and I know this because I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, Sioux City, Iowa, in the mm -hmm. corner of Nebraska, South Dakota, with the world's biggest stockyards. And when we talk about natural thyroid replacement, oh boy. You know, mm -hmm. armor thyroid, the mm -hmm. armor plant was in Sioux City, Iowa, mm -hmm. and they would kill these hogs. They're, they don't call them pigs. They're, they're hogs. Mm -hmm. And, they would kill these hogs and they'd rip out their thyroids and dry it up and grind it up and then put it in a pill. And mm -hmm. people say, I want the natural I want stuff. The natural option. If mm -hmm. you knew what that plant was like, right. what it's like in there and what this is and, and how yeah. unregulated that is, yeah. you'd go, that doesn't seem that natural to me. Right. And so like with this, it's navigating this picture because we have now biases against traditional medicine and traditional medicine isn't really living up to that, creating all of these horror stories and these perspectives that people have that are skewed towards the natural product industry, which is as bad, if not worse than, you know, big pharma in its day. Um, so now we have to like navigate all of it. So you know, you had given some great advice. When you call the doctor to schedule an appointment, you should um, be very specific about what's going on and not try to like self-diagnose. Also to say, when you really are scared, when you think you have something serious, you need to be specific and say, I really need to be seen today. Mm -hmm. This can't wait till tomorrow. What can you do for me? Right. Often, an office will say, well, if it's that bad, go to the emergency room, which is the last thing the patient wants to hear. It's and a very and scary patients will go to yeah. urgent care centers mm -hmm. with things they shouldn't. You know, you don't go to an urgent care center if you have some abdominal problem because they can't do a CAT scan and blood tests where they get the results in the same day. Mm -hmm. If you're having chest pain or you're having some major thing, don't go to an urgent care center. It's for more minor things. Yeah, but, cut scrapes. Yes. Yeah, broken bones. But patients will not describe to a receptionist, a call center, how serious or what they're concerned about or what these symptoms are. And so it'll all go down the wrong path if you're not yeah. able to do that. It it doesn't hurt to come in with a list of your concerns. The, every doctor at the end of every visit should say, are there any other concerns that we, do you understand? Can you reflect back to me what I just told you about mm -hmm. this? You know, you, you know this with compliance. Yeah. But every doctor, and you've had this experience, I'm sure too, because memory works on associated memories. Mm -hmm. My son, who grew up in Woodstock, is now a tenured professor at UCLA, and he studies cognitive neuroscience and memory researcher. He's director of the Risman Memory Lab, and among other things. And he will describe how, how you pull memories by looking at what's associated to this. This isn't stored like information in your computer. So a patient will come in and you say, uh, ma'am, uh, can you 
can you tell me uh, when did that abdominal pain start? And then you start getting the story. Well, I was at the diner and I was trying to decide between the tuna fish and the egg salad, or maybe I was going to have this. And, and then uh, I decided to have, the, it didn't taste right to me. And then they start going into some elaborate thing of, and it goes on and on and on. Yeah. And this is why doctors don't ask open-ended questions because we all know those patients, the only way they can tell a story is the whole story the and every yeah. detail of it that you don't need, you can't get to the point. Mm -hmm. And it's those small subset of patients that scare doctors. And so yeah. it, it inhibits them from asking open-ended questions and listening. But most people don't do that. But, yeah. but when it happens, it's hard to redirect people. I'm sure you've had people. Oh, no, that's, like that's a huge problem with us. And I, so that goes to my point is like, so how the doctor has no time. They're fiddling around with their computer uh, and they're already late and they're late for the next one. And so you get like 13 seconds with them, you feel, right? right. right. Um, but you have a lot of stuff you want to talk about because it, you've been booking this like six weeks in advance to try to get in right. to talk to them. So how does a patient handle that? Like what, what should a patient do to be prepared to make, get their, their value of their interaction with their doctor in this more modern system? They really should start out the visit and say specifically, I'm having this and this and this concern. Mm -hmm. These are the things I'm concerned about. And then go back to one thing and another thing and another thing but put it out there out front so that they don't walk out the door and you didn't address their most important concern. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've gone through a whole visit and the patient is walking out the door and they say, well, you know, my uncle had the same kind of pain under their arm and it turned out to be lung cancer in their chest. And, and you're just going, why didn't you tell me that before? Right at, the, at the beginning. So mm -hmm. I could address what it is you're afraid of. Mm-hmm. But it's an afterthought as, yeah. as they walk out. Yeah, and I think, so make a list of what yeah. you want to talk about and then give the executive summary uh, yes. at the beginning. So yes. say, okay, so I'm here for this and this is how I feel and these are the other things I want to talk about. And then like sit in front of the door and don't let the doctor move until he's answered all your questions, right? That's I mean, right, you know? that's right. Because there is that compulsion to just kind of like get blown off. And then, you know, there's other issues that are associated with the doctor, the, the, the thought that they're going to just push drugs on people. Right. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, it is true that that healing is so much more than what medicine you take or what diagnostic test you have. And and you know that in your business mm -hmm. that healing is a much bigger thing. And I was talking about just being empathetic and being there for people. Let me let me give you the the most common. You have an anxious mother at eleven o'clock at night and you're trying to you're just gonna go to bed. And you get a call about a kid with a fever and you ask the appropriate questions, reassure yourself this isn't dire right at the moment. But the most important thing you tell that anxious mother or anxious father is, you know what? If something changes tonight, you just call me back. I don't care if it's three in the morning, you call me back. Mm -hmm. They never call you back. Right. Because what they really want is to know you're there. Mm-hmm that you're available. Mm -hmm. They don't really want to bother you at three in the morning. They just want to know if something really happened and they were really scared, they could do that and it would be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there were some three in the morning calls from the ER and the emergency and the emergency room and, and the ICU where you're lying there in bed and you go, could have been a dermatologist. Why am I doing this? <laughs> right. You know, right. Could have been a biology teacher, you know, really. Yeah. So, uh, you do have those moments, but I wouldn't change what I, what I did here. Right. And I mean, so what I'm hearing from you is this, what you're talking about, is this real life or is this, is this special? Like the tactics that you're talking about that the doctor should be using to be empathetic and to be communicating. Is that happening in communities all across the country? Because the, the narrative seems to not support that. Right. And, and it's really the computer, which hopefully puts down the patient's history and gets the medication straight and the allergies straight has an advantage also pulls you away from eye contact with the human connection with touching the patient, really examining the patient and being empathetic. Part of it is it needs to be taught. It is being talked about in medical school. There's a whole national international organization, uh, uh, for communication in healthcare to improve communication in healthcare. 
But my own personal experience is they're more interested in how many clicks on the computer did you when because medicine is so corporate now. Yeah. The reason it's corporate, and we're not supposed to talk about fee schedules from insurance companies because that's that's a trade issue, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is crazy. But the big medical groups, whether it's across the river or here, are historically would make much more money than a mom-and-pop grocery store like me. So they would actually negotiate higher rates of pay. They would pay, everything was based on a Medicare rate as a standard. And so they could pay a big group 150% of a Medicare rate for a particular office visit or procedure. And I would get 75% of the Medicare. And for the same procedure, and I'm the one keeping the patient out of the hospital. I could do the biopsy. I could sew up your cut. I don't have to send you to the hospital. I know how to do all these things. Yeah. I can inject your shoulder. I, mm-hmm. can, I know how to do this. I'm cutting the cost of healthcare and getting paid less for the same procedure as somebody that belongs to a big group who refer within that group and jack up the cost of healthcare. And it, it was so insulting. And, and it was part of the reason we eventually had to merge into a, a larger bigger, group. a yeah. larger group. And that's what's happening compete. in every town across the country. And I'm sure it's true in pharmacy too. Pharmacy is, is on a death throes. Like we're done. Uh, I think there was just a survey of community pharmacists, 60% plan to sell within the next two years. Mm. So, um, so that's, and that, that's the people that are more active that are participating that are in that survey because, you know, a lot of independent pharmacists aren't very active with it. So, and now pharmacies are adding their own practitioners and nurse practitioner yeah. uh, urgent care visits uh, as we know. And so you start to wonder, do they have enough billions of dollars to start buying up all the medical groups? Yeah. CVS is going to own your hospital next. You know, that it's the only thing that makes sense. And so back to your, your last story, it's just insane to me being a Bernie supporter that we're paying anything more than Medicare and everybody should just get the Medicare rate and there should be one rate. And that's it. Just because, you know, you and I are both humans. Why is your Simvastatin any different of a price or cost than mine is? You know, it's the same drug. We're living in the same town. We should be paying the same amount for the medication. It should be a flat service fee to the pharmacy to provide that, that, bit you know if you want to cap the profit levels do it you know but let's make sure everybody's getting paid for what service that they're providing right and again the the point of all this is the horror stories of the medical industry is to say this is why we have a horror story at the patient level you know is because the system the the machine is broken and it needs to get changed and as a result we're 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 losing this what what can patients do to not become the next horror story either from their own uh, account or from their doctor's account in a polite way not in an annoying windy way but in a polite way the patients who do know things and look them up and write them down and ask the questions do get more attention. Yeah. They really do. It's yeah. it's it's good to write things down to keep it's track of It's good to be this. active in your care. You can't be so passive where I you know, I talk to people, it's it's immunization season. Have you gotten the most recent pneumo vax? I, I have no idea. You know, <laughs> and like so if you don't know or if that's not something you commit to, write it down and keep it in some place so that way you have some information. But yes, be more active in your care. Uh, is definitely one of the the big ones. But, but don't but look up everything. Right. Don't believe the internet, though, either. You know. Yeah, you're right about the whole healthcare system. In that, what I start those conversations about the healthcare system with, you know, I don't know anybody. There's just nobody in my life who I think doesn't deserve healthcare. Do you know somebody that I, doesn't deserve healthcare? Yeah, I mean the the president uh, <laughs> <laughs> could probably use uh, less healthcare. I think right, right, or more healthcare, more mental yeah. healthcare, mental yeah. healthcare. Yes, <laughs> yes yeah, he needs. Really, and anybody that wants to no. look up malignant narcissism can, can look that up. So, so I start with that conversation. Let's let's get to the bit. Can we all agree that everybody deserves this? This is should have rational, good health care. This is crazy not to yeah. do that. Where does the money go in healthcare? The money goes to you know the pharma- the mm-hmm. pharmaceuticals, the supply companies, the oxygen companies, the 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 Insh- people that rip off the hospitals the mm-hmm. the hospitals on some things have to give away a lot of free care they make money and excessively charge for certain things like bypass surgery and knee replacements and hip replacements but a lot of things they lose on the 
doctors are not the ones, except for the super specialists that or don't take insurance that can rip off the system. It's not the doctor's fees that are actually, even though some people may think they're excessive, it's not, that's not where the dollar is going. It's yeah. going to this incredible waste. Yeah. And there is enough money for everybody and to provide more services. And, and for everybody to profit too. Independent yes. practitioners like you and I should thrive and we should compete with other independent people in our communities to, to provide the best level of service. We should all be getting the same thing. It shouldn't be um, like, uh, you know, you, this person gets one and a half times, I get 75%. Everybody should be getting the same. So that way we are competing on care. And, and we should make money for the risk that we put out in, into the community, but it shouldn't be excessive. We're not trying to be Bezos. We're not trying to like have everything. So, uh, so I believe that there's plenty of money for everybody to get care and there's plenty of money for the, the care providers to make profit. Uh, I just think that the middlemen are the ones that are taking all of our money right now. And as a result, it's, it's, it's crippling our, our care system. And you see that in other developed countries where they have good healthcare systems and people say, well, they have waiting lists. They can't get this. They can't get we that. We have waiting lists. We have waiting lists. And and the other thing is the Canadians, the British, the French, they spend so much less per patient, mm -hmm. per person in their population for healthcare than we do. Yeah. And they get more services. Right. If we spent, if, if they spent what we spent, they'd be, you know, room service at home when you're sick. I mean, Absolutely. you, they... Mm -hmm. They don't spend what we. There's just a yeah. lot of waste in the in the system, and it clearly. Uh, I believe in universal healthcare. We mm -hmm. talked about this when I was in medical school a yeah. million years ago. We're have I can't believe we're having the same conversation of how do you get healthcare to everybody, and and how important that is. I do understand the logical argument that, gee. And I love Medicare. I'm on Medicare now. It's, it's a wonderful thing to use my mm -hmm. Medicare card and my supplemental insurance. Mm -hmm. It makes things very easy. They don't question me, and I can get health care anywhere. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to Medicare, Medicare only provides 15 17% of the population's health care. Yeah. They're not prepared to do 100% right no, away. Yeah. And there is an argument that you have to do something to Obamacare immediately to have a public option, maybe a buy-in to Medicare so that people, more people can get healthcare immediately, assuming yeah. the government in Washington will change. Which we can't like, even get to those like logistic things because we're too yeah. busy arguing about how yeah. can we keep our billionaires rich, yes. and that's really where our focus is. We can't even get to the nuance of the whole thing. So, so to prevent horror stories, be an active um, patient, um, communicate clearly, and know that the system is broken. It's not. Our, we're trying not for it to be our fault. We're trying to work with what we have. One example of sure. patients uh, being proactive is they should keep a file of their blood tests and their x-rays and their reports and yeah. their summaries. And so if they travel, if they're somewhere, if they're, they have this with them, they yeah. should actually keep track of this. I know that healthcare systems have one computer system. When they switch to a second computer system, those files don't go over. Right. They, don't they, they for a while, just mm -hmm. keep it in a separate... And information's lost. Keep yeah. it yourself. Make yeah. sure you have copies of it. Just those. like your car. You got to keep your oil changes and all this stuff in one spot. So, yep, good record retention. And, and again, like know that the system's broken. We're working our best with it. Everything's changed, but we still, this is the system that we have. So, um, yeah. So, and ask lots of questions, you know, don't, don't settle for any answers. Always push, always ask lots of questions. And I think you know, people will appreciate that. We were talking earlier about employees and finding good employees and how everybody in your system is important. The file in my office, the file clerk is as important as the doctor. It's all important. And hopefully doctors treat their staff that way. It's all important. It allows you to do what you do. Yeah. I have had teams of people pointing me in the right direction all the time. And, mm -hmm. and that was helpful. Um, but being appreciative is important of that. Everybody's important. And all of this information is important. And, and every step of the way, you need to work with the system, talk to people, ask the questions. When I would hire a new staff member, the first thing I'd say, I expect you to ask a lot of questions. Yeah. If you or taking this job and you don't ask questions all the time, I'm going to think you're really stupid. Right. 
asking questions makes you seem smart. Yeah. And there's a beautiful research study on the issue of asking questions. It was a psychiatrist getting on a plane in Los Angeles. Let's call it American Airlines going to New York. <laughs> and the psychiatrist's assignment was to give out nothing about himself, but he would sit next to somebody. Let's see, he'd sit next to another guy. And then they would interview the the person sitting next to the psychiatrist in New York. Oh, we're just doing a survey. How was the flight? How was the service on American Airlines? Was, you know, anything interesting happened? Was, oh, I sat next to the most interesting person I've ever met. Well, what do they do? Oh, you know, I don't know. Well, right. do they have a family? Are mm -hmm. they married? No, I don't know. But they were the most interesting person. They thought that this psychiatrist was so interesting because the whole flight, he was asking them questions. Right. And, and so if you ask intelligent, engaging, important questions, people think you're smart. They don't think you're stupid. They think you're smart. Right. Yeah. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask questions. All right, Dr. Risman. Well, thanks for coming in. Thanks for your service to the community for all these years. And uh, I hope to have you back on to, in Christmas time to talk about holiday miracles and medical miracles so we can put a positive spin on all this negative stuff we were talking about with the horror stories. That's a really good idea because I often tell patients, I said, you know, somebody's failing or things are going bad. I said, I want to make sure you understand the miracles that are right in front of you. This is somebody who five years ago I thought was I would have counted out, and they've made it all this with their strength and your good care. I don't want you to miss the miracle right in front of you. We yeah. don't we don't make the rules in life about life and death. The leaves fall off the trees in the fall, and then they come back in the spring. No matter what your spiritual beliefs are, we didn't invent that. We don't control that. The doctor's job, the pharmacist's job. Take a little duct tape and super glue and keep the leaves on as long as possible. They still fall off. And, right. and we didn't invent the life and death. We're just here to be supportive and helpful. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you again, Dr. Rissman, for coming on. Here's my take. Pharmacists like myself have like very brief conversations with physicians, if at all anymore, uh, considering how everything's now electronically prescribed and nobody's talking to each other. So it's always a great pleasure to sit and actually talk without any constraints or pressure. You know, we all get lost in our own disciplines. And I think it's important for all of you pharmacists out there listening to try to make time with your local docs. It'll help you build trust more between the two of you. And, you know, as Dr. Rissman said, the communication's key to make care better. I think that after our discussion, it can't be any clearer. I think the real horror story is the current American medical system. The pilfering of the coffers by the middlemen is excessive. We see it a lot in pharmacy with the pharmacy benefit managers. You know, 41 other countries on this planet provide better care for less money, and it's sick that we're not leading that. Because of it, private practices like the one Dr. Rissman created don't exist. In our own region, there were dozens. Now there's less than a handful of private practices remaining. And as a result, the level of care has fallen. Physicians, nurses, pharmacists, all of us are frustrated. We don't have time to connect with people anymore. We're not treated like professionals, but we're mud pie makers for this big corporate system. Just rushing from one patient to the next and our heads are down in our computers, checking all the boxes and all the forms. And we're not providing good care. And that's the nightmare on Main Street. Docs like Dr. Rissman and their practices, they've built on blood, sweat, and tears are going away. And with it has gone the connection the relationship has changed for the worse. And I hate to be, you know, a negative Neely, but this is what's real. And I hope that in the future, uh, things will change and things will turn around. So for now, I think we should support Dr. Rissman as best as we can. He's known as the colorblind physician in his retired state, and he doesn't have a web presence yet, but you can Google online. He's, uh, he's all over the place. Uh, we'll put some posters on our uh, podcast page so that way you can hear it. So thanks again for listening. I hope you tell all of your friends about this episode and, you know, tell them about the podcast and subscribe to it. Maybe if we get successful enough, we can license some music to play during our Halloween episode, maybe like Monster Mash or something like that. Something cheap. I'm never going to be able to afford Thriller, but whatever. So thanks for tuning in. Keep listening, keep learning, and be well. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.